is Our American Stories, and we love to cover our favorite shows. And two of them are, well, they're not necessarily new. Judge Judy's been out there forever. But we still cover it for you because it's one of the most entertaining hours on television. We get it for an hour here in Oxford, Mississippi. I don't know about you or you are, but most of the country gets it an hour. And then there's Shark Tank, which is running, it seems, never-endingly so on CNBC at night and is the number one rated show on Fridays. It's been Friday nights. It's been around four or five years, and it's terrific, and it just keeps getting better. And we cover a pitch a week when we can. And this past week, Phil and David pitched their product, Physics their patent-pending invention that enhances the flavor of any beer. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. I'm Phil Petraka. And I'm David McDonald. We are the founders of Physics from Newark, New Jersey. We're seeking a $500,000 investment for 4% equity in our company. Wow. Physics is changing the way people are drinking beer at home and on the go. Beer is pretty awesome, and we all know that beer tastes best fresh from the tap. After all, that's how the brewers intended their beers to taste. But in order to reach the masses, beer is sold in cans and bottles worldwide. And unfortunately for us beer lovers, it just doesn't taste as good as it does fresh from the tap. But drab beer is a thing of the past with physics. The world's first and only portable draft beer system that delivers an awesome, better than tap, experience from any can or bottle. Simply place any size can or any size bottle, oh, you can put even up to a 64-ounce growler into the system and insert the feed tube. Pull the tap handle forward, and the system will begin to pour the beer under pressure at a controlled rate with no gas, no chemicals, and no replaceable cartridges. And then when you push the handle in the backwards position, behold the magic of science. I'm excited, and I don't drink beer. Here's how it works. Utilizing sound waves, we perfect the density, stability, and texture of the foam, enhancing the aroma and flavor of an authentic draft beer. Wow! (laughs) Here's what the Sharks had to say after a side-by-side comparison of regular beer from a can versus beer that had gone through the physics device. Oh, definitely smoother, definitely better. Like night and day. Oh, that's a good beer. Oh, that is good. Is that good? And that's from a can. This is good. That's from a can. The foam is really good. The foam is the most critical element of the beer drinking experience. Can I get a share of hands, sharks? Who feels that the physics is better than the other one? I would say this definitely advances night and day. Night and day. They're like two different beers. We always say tasting is believing. Believe me, I was very skeptical when I saw this. Yeah, me too. Mr. Wonderful might be on board with the product, but it's the valuation that's another story. Now. I've looked at the valuation, and I say, are you guys out of your friggin' minds? Well, Kevin, we just started shipping product eight oh. months ago, oh. and we've done $3.2 million in sales. Wow. Okay. Not bad, not bad. You just started shipping. How, How much does it? that cost? This retails for $199. And Phil. what does it cost you to make? $35.88. Oh, wow, good for you. Wow, good market. Really? Phil. Yeah. Really? You bet. Robert. Well, he's ready for an offer. I'll give you the 500000 for 8%. Robert, thank you so much for your offer. We believe it's way below market. This is part of our Series A round. Wow, Series A round. Mr. Wonderful? I will give you the same offer, 500000 for 8%. I like this deal a lot. I can move a lot of units, a lot. And here, Barbara Corcoran tells it like she sees it. I'm wildly enthusiastic about the product, but I'm not wildly enthusiastic about you. 
I feel like you're too slick. You have every answer. And my gut is ringing. It's got to be something wrong. You're too slick for me. I don't trust you, so I'm out. That's got to burn. Just somebody says, I just don't like you. Exactly right. It's not your business. It's not your plan. It's not your product. She's honest. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And by the way, it's not that you have all the right answers. Because that's what she basically said. (laughs) Well, sometimes you just don't like someone for whatever reason. Here's the reason that Damon drops out. The main reason that I started to do this show and love this program is all the people that really need help. You don't need any money. You're cash flow positive. Why are you here? Well, we need to scale. There's some retailers that we want to go into that we currently can't because we have channel conflict. So what Give I want to show, what I want to show you all is, is what we're anticipating, what we're investing in. You didn't even get to your slides yet. This is our <laughs> this is our next generation product. <laughs> no, Phil, Phil, I'm I'm just gonna let everybody wait, wait, help. Wait, Phil, I Phil, see. Phil, so this Phil, is our next Phil, generation Phil, Phil, Phil. Yes, I'm sir. out. Okay. Why'd you do that? <laughs> wow, Lori, what about you? The great thing for you is I have QVC and TV sales because you need to get out there education. You need people to know what it is. So it's Absolutely. free advertising. So I am also going to give you 500000 for 8%. 8% by three offers, same offer, three different sharks. Things start to move fast when Mark Cuban throws in his offer and wait for some man crying at the end of this clip. <laughs> some man crying. I want to make an offer. And I'll even open up to Lori to come in on my offer. So I'll offer you $800,000 for 10%. That valuation is higher than the 500 for 8%. But it gives you more cash so you can go to work faster and you have either one or two sharks. I would like to make a counter to Mark and Lori. I like the deal. All right? I think we'd be great partners. This is our Series A round. If you want to take the whole Series A, we're looking to raise $2 million yeah, at a right. $10 million pre-money valuation. So that's 16%? Yes, 16.67. Well, I want to compete. Okay, I'll do that deal. Done. Oh, deal. my God. <laughs> it's really, it it's here, really it fabulous. I am Get not a beer drinker. And, you are uh, now, baby. Me. You are now. I am you now. You are now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We did it. We risked it all. Left great jobs. This is the American dream. I'm just so full of emotion right now. It's awesome. <laughs> so okay. It's okay, man. There's no crying on Shark Tank. Oh, the whole that's the first time ever that the entire Series A round, when thrown out there, was covered by the Sharks. Jesse, what do you think? Would you give this a shot? You're the beer drinker in the house. Absolutely. Shake up my beer, make it a little more foamy. (laughs) What the heck? Right. (laughs) This is Lee Habib, Shark Tank. We love it because it's everything we love about America. A bunch of folks trying to get ahead. And some one percenters trying to help some youngsters and some old timers get ahead themselves. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. This is our American stories, and we love to talk sports, and we love to talk sports 
with Nate Scott from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at ftw.usatoday.com. And what a time it is. Nate, good to have you with us. Thanks, Lee. Always a pleasure. Well, there's no time like the fall, Nate, for doing these things and covering sports. And right now you're covering, well, just about everything, I guess. We know fans can get a little excited, Nate, but some can cross that line of friendly competitiveness. And we've been watching sports fans, well, get a little crazier each and every year. What was thrown at the Orioles outfielder? Yeah, we had a fan. uh, This was up in Toronto in the last series in the uh, ALDS. Toronto Blue Jays taking on the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, a fan ended up throwing a a can of beer at an Orioles outfielder um, and started a massive kind of witch hunt. And Not a witch hunt. I mean, he deserved it. (laughs) A massive manhunt, I guess, uh, up in Toronto for this fan uh, that did it. But... uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it makes you realize, you know, hope people realize it's it's just sports, guys. It's just a game. We don't need to be uh, threatening or, you know, uh, throwing full cans of beer at, at athletes. Yeah, exactly. And 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 the thing is, that's a perfectly good beer, Nate. This is the other <laughs> thing. <laughs> Another good point. Another good point. Especially at these ball games now. That's what, like, a, probably eleven. That's bucks eleven for bucks a, for a beer. <laughs> Throw an empty <laughs> can. And then it won't have any velocity, and then it can't hurt anybody because it won't go anywhere. That is exactly right. By the way, the quote from uh, in the For the Win piece from teammate Adam Jones, your writer quoted, that's about as pathetic as it gets. I don't care how passionate you are. Yell, cuss, scream, say we stink. We're horrible. We get it. We're the opponent. We completely understand that. You could hit him in the back of the head and have no idea what could happen. And so I think they don't mind. Look, it's part of the game to get heckled and to get ridiculed and ripped and worse, but uh, a little out of control. What about the guys that are not on the field? Sports announcers are facing a lot of pressure being in front of the camera. What's the story on Fox Sports announcer Joe Buck? Yeah, Joe Buck, uh, you know, a few years ago, back in 2011, he uh, he took some time off to uh, to, to for a, a virus that affected his vocal cords. Um, he's got a new book coming out and, and, produ- and uh, promoting it. He basically came forward and said, you know, that wasn't just a virus. What happened was I contracted the virus because I had hair implant, sur- hair plug surgery. And he says now that he was addicted to the treatment. And that was what caused him to miss time was his addiction to a hair plugs, which I, I didn't know was an addiction. That I didn't possible, know that either. And by, the way, that, you know. by the way, I could use that addiction. <laughs> uh, well, be so, careful apparently it's, it's life i know it's dangerous so buck so buck is basically confessing that the drive to look good in sports broadcasting caused him to lie about a problem that came about because he was trying to stay young i know and it's i mean it's so funny because you know pat you know pat summerall and john madden maybe the two most beloved sports announcers of, of i don't know of the modern football these weren't exactly a pinup models we're talking no about no and I, I actually think this is in joe buck's head because none of us tune into our favorite sports announcers because they're pretty i think i think exactly. this may be joe's joe's issue and and by the way you know speaking of you know legends vince you know vince scully retires and again this isn't yeah. a guy who you know anyone would call a pinup model but my goodness what a broadcaster what a broadcaster and what a what a way to go out. Sixty seven years with the same team and uh 
doing it by himself, which, I mean, you can testify. It's not the easiest thing to, to talk for hours a day just by your lonesome. And he did it for 67 years and remained relevant and interesting the whole time. It's incredible. Yeah, we actually played uh, an excerpt the other day. We were doing an hour on John Wooden, and we played Vin Scully's call. He was calling a Dodger game, and he interrupted it. And as only Vin Scully can do, he starts to talk about Wooden, his life. He goes on one of these great Scully riffs and then starts quoting Shakespeare. It was just <laughs> remarkable. It was remarkable. And the, and the best thing about him is he would always manage to do all that and still get just in time for the, for the end of the inning. That's he, right. He was like he, he, had a, he had a conversation with God, and God's like, hey, man, you got a minute and 30. And he'd be like, all right, I got you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Never missed a pitch, never missed a moment, had that clock in his head. And just grace and just just pure beauty listening to him. Now, some sports impact people in a lot of different ways, and a lot of fans can be a bit superstitious, Nate. Does Washington, D.C., where I call a place I called home for many years, have a sports curse as bad as the Chicago Cubs? I argued that they don't. You know, I, 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 I'm living here in, in D.C. now, and it reminds me of where I grew up in in, in New England back in the early, you know, 90s, early aughts, when the people there were obsessed with this idea that the Red Sox were cursed and, and Boston was cursed, and then it flipped and everything changed. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write to the, to the D.C. fans. I wrote a column saying there is no Washington sports curse, basically saying, you know, you've, you've had some inept general managers, some bad management, some bad ownership, but there, there's no curse. You know, this is, this is uh, only one team wins every year. And if your team isn't the team, that doesn't mean that there's some sort of curse. So I'm sure they'll be back soon. Yeah. And I think it's easy to rely on that stuff. And sometimes that just sounds better than we just have been, we've just sucked for a long time. It's hard to just well, admit. I wrote about that, how it's, you know, you want it to have meaning. You want your losing to to make sense and have a narrative. And it's, I think it's the same stuff that people have with conspiracy theories. You know, they want things to make sense. That's so and, true. And, uh, you know, sometimes teams just stink. So even sports teams and addicts have to have their grassy knoll. Let's take Let's hear about the Cubs curse from Stephen Colbert. Now, for those of you who don't know, The curse of the billy goat began in 1945 when a tavern owner brought his goat to Wrigley Field for the World Series because everyone knows goats love baseball. And when they were thrown out, the man declared, you are never going to win the World Series again because you insulted my goat. And ever since then, the Cubs have suffered from the curse of the goat as well as the curses of bad management and unwillingness to pay for good players. In fact, in fact, the curse is so legendary that a few weeks ago, in order to reverse the curse, a team of competitive eaters ate a 40-pound goat. Somehow, still more healthy than eating ballpark nachos. And there's Colbert getting it all just right. Let's take it from the field to the ice. Nate, tell us a little bit about Austin Matthews. What's all the hype about? Oh, this kid is going to be special. Austin Matthews was the first overall pick by the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, a kid who grew up in Arizona, um, became an Arizona Coyotes fan. He's the first one I've ever heard of. Uh, But um, And is a 19-year-old kid, came out, 
and scored four goals in its first game for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, of course, the Maple Leafs still managed to lose the game 5-4, uh, to four, which is like a pretty nice, nice little metaphor for the entirety of the last, I don't know, 60 years of Toronto Maple Leafs hockey. So uh, there is hope in Toronto, and I just really hope they don't overwhelm this kid with pressure. And, you know, at a time when you've got almost every major sport either beginning or in full swing, you've got college football, pro football, Major League Baseball in the playoffs, you've got basketball and hockey about to enter or entering preseason. How do you do all of this, Nate? How do you and your staff do anything? Or is this just your favorite time because you've been bored out of your minds after a long summer? (laughs) Uh, It's sort of feast or famine. I think we were ready for things to get going, and now it's just overwhelming. Um, You know, this this is our crazy time. This is our exciting time. Um, it's great. We're looking forward to it. Baseball, you know, this is when baseball is super fun. NHL and NBA, all the teams still have hope, and we're settling into the football season. Well, so. if you would have told so me or anyone here. you know that Cleveland might be looking at a couple of championship seasons in any decade, let alone a single year, you'd let, you'd be laughed out of Dodge, Nate. So It's uh, unbelievable. It's pretty unbelievable. Well, you have fun. You and your team have fun. As always, we love talking sports. Any, any predictions, Nate, uh, going into the – Going into the year, any big ones you want to make? Um, I think the Warriors are going to win 70 games again, which is crazy. <laughs> That's a big <laughs> one. one time, but I think they're going to do it again. I think this team's unstoppable. Well, we'll take a ge- we're going to take a gentleman's bet on that. I'm going to submit that they added one too many cooks into the, oh. into the kitchen. And I say 65 this year, Nate. Um, but they'll still win the championship. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> That's still pretty good. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as always, Nate Scott from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at ftw.usatoday.com. That's For the Win, ftw.usatoday.com. More after these messages. our American stories where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world, which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this series. He's authored 11 books, including the terrific Almanac of American Philanthropy, which you should pick up and read with your family. Take it away, Carl. You know, most charitable giving focuses on one cause or one region or one idea. 
But occasionally, donors get involved in producing something bigger than just an institution or a program. Today, I'm going to tell you about a case where American philanthropy can actually be said to have created a nation. Because at its crucial stages of birth, growth, and survival under stress, the state of Israel has depended utterly on givers in the U.S. Even now, as a stable and flourishing country, Israel continues to receive upwards of $3 billion every year in private donations from overseas Jews, with the lion's share of that coming from Americans. In a normal year, one out of every three Jewish adults in the U.S. will contribute some money to a cause in Israel. In terms of dollars, around 8 to 15 percent of all Jewish American charity goes to the Promised Land. And during periods when the Jewish state was in crisis, contribution levels have soared much, much higher than that. And history makes one thing very clear. Without that voluntary support from Americans, the modern state of Israel wouldn't be thriving as it currently is, and it might not exist at all. American charity for Israel initially began to flow during the First World War, when Jews were threatened by starvation and persecution in several regions. Some of the money given by Americans was spent to resettle Jews in the Holy Land, but most donors then preferred that their gifts be used to help make Jews safer and more prosperous right in the European and Middle Eastern nations where most of them were then living. That changed during World War II. It became clear that Jews were in mortal danger in some countries. So efforts were organized to move families to what was then the British territory of Palestine. When Hitler's attempt to exterminate Jews became widely understood at the end of the war, individual Americans donated more than half a billion dollars in just a few years to relocate the survivors to Palestine. In 1948, the year the modern state of Israel was founded, American Jews gave a surge of gifts, totaling more than four times as much as all the donations that year to the American Red Cross. Those charitable funds allowed a million refugees to be resettled in Israel in its first years. Nearly all of them arrived penniless and utterly dependent on outside charity. And immediately, the fighting started. Within days of the founding of Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq were dispatching military forces to crush the new state. The only reason Jews were able to resist was because American donors had foreseen this and begun to arm Israelis. Just two months after Hitler committed suicide and Germany surrendered, 18 wealthy U.S. Jews gathered in New York and formed what was called the Sonneborn Institute to import military and non-military supplies for Israel's pioneer settlers. This included smuggling in surplus World War II weapons. And some experienced American soldiers and flyers volunteered their expertise. In nearly a year of fighting, 6,400 Jews were killed, about 1% of the population, but the state of Israel was preserved. Donors then began to build up Israeli society. One of the first causes that had been funded by Americans was hospitals and clinics in Jerusalem. The U.S. Jewish women's group, Hadassah, has raised billions of dollars for health care in Israel and continues to support major medical facilities in the country today. Then came the difficult task of turning the country into an economic success that could support itself. That was not easy, notes Dan Senor, author of a book about Israeli business. How did Israel pull this off? A nation surrounded by adversaries, effectively in a state of war since its founding, no access to natural resources. As David Ben-Gurion used to say, if the Jews were so smart, how did we get the one slab of land in the Middle East with no oil? <laughs> So it's an amazing thing. How did Israel pull this off in the least likely of places? 
After basic security had been established in Israel, the cause that attracted more donations than any other was education. Today, about one out of every five dollars that American charitable donors send to Israel goes to schooling. The biggest gifts have been directed to universities. The result has been to dramatically shift the Israeli economy away from dusty, low-income agriculture into high technology. Israel now has the most research-intensive business sector in the world. Fully 46% of Israel's exports are now from high-tech industries. And standing behind that accomplishment are universities like the Israel Institute of Technology, the Weizmann Institute, and Ben-Gurion University. Billions of dollars of gifts from Americans have helped build up these colleges over a period of decades. As Israel matured and grew beyond its crisis years, culture and arts have become another major area of support by U.S. philanthropists. Archaeology has been one obvious area of fascination, and many great discoveries about the history of the Holy Land have been made over the last generation or two with donor funding. Improving governance in Israel has been another favorite cause. American donors like Bernie Marcus, Sheldon Adelson, Paul Singer, and many others have given funds to create think tanks, establish newspapers, root out corruption, improve economic research, and strengthen democratic process. In a land where the average citizen pays 58% of his income in taxes, U.S. givers have pushed for more efficiency, more liberty, more rule of law, and more private sector growth. The end result of all this charity is a flourishing society, still stressed by external and internal demands, but highly productive and more democratic than any other nation within a thousand miles proving that with a few decades of loyal support, private charity can build even nation states and under the toughest of circumstances. And what a great story from Carl. And it reminded us of a story, Jewish philanthropy, that is, and, and the remarkable nature and power of Jewish philanthropy here in the United States. It reminded us of a story we did uh, with Bernie Marcus uh, celebrating his life on our This Day in History series. And there was a particular part of that hour where we focused on Mr. Marcus's generosity, and Bernie's the co-founder of the Home Depot. It turns out, going back and reading about that from the book he wrote about the founding of Home Depot, it turns out Bernie's parents had come to the United States because they were discriminated against in Russia for being Jewish. His mother, though, told him that this land, the United States, would be the golden land of opportunity for him if he took advantage of it. It was, he did. But even here, he faced discrimination for being Jewish. He was accepted in a Harvard Medical School, but wasn't allowed in because there were quotas on the number of Jewish students, and you had to pay $10,000 to circumvent the quota. The Marcus family didn't have that kind of money. Not then. And here's the rub. Even though they didn't have much money, and they lived in a really tough part of Newark, New Jersey, not far from where I grew up, His mom taught him the importance of generosity, making him occasionally give up his ice cream money to those kids who were even poorer than him in the neighborhood. Here, Bernie is talking about how his Jewish faith inspired his generosity. You know, I'm Jewish. We have a word called tzedakah. We grow up with it, and it means that you have to give back. It's part of our religion. It's part of who we are. Um, You find Jewish philanthropists, you know, in the United States, we represent a 1.5% of the population and 18% of the philanthropy. Did you know that? It's part of the religion. You grow up with it, you're taught to do it. 
That's remarkable. One and a half percent of the population, 18 percent of the philanthropy. And this is Lee Habib, the Sweet Charity Series, as always, from Carl Zinsmeister and the great folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable. Pick up the Almanac of American Philanthropy. It's just read after read. And my goodness, how America is caricatured by folks at universities, the 1% caricatures being stingy and greedy. Everything we're learning in our profiles of American businessmen is the opposite. Up is down, down is up. Again, the Sweet Charity Series, as always, brought to us from the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable. More after these messages. Listening to Alan Jackson here on Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1958, he was born. He sold over 80 million records worldwide, 34 number ones. Just crazy. Two Grammys, 16 CMAs, 17 ACMs. Born to Joseph Eugene Daddy Jean Jackson and Ruth Music Mama Ruth Jackson in Noonan, Georgia. Four older sisters. He, his father, mother, and sisters lived in a small home built around his grandfather's old tool shed. At one point, his bed was in the hallway for lack of room. His mother lives in the home to this day. Jackson sang in church as a child. His first job at 12 was in a shoe store. He wrote his first song in 1983. As a youth, Jackson listened primarily to gospel. Then a friend introduced him to the music of Gene Watson, John Anderson, and Hank Williams, Jr., He started a band after high school. At the age of 27, Jackson and his wife, Denise, moved from Noonan to Nashville, where he hoped to pursue music full-time. Here, Alan Jackson talks about how his first hit song, Here in the Real World, couldn't have come at a better time. Here in the real world, it's not that easy at all. That was just writing songs and... uh... I mean, real world was really kind of a, not necessarily something that, out of my life or anything. It was just a story song about, you know, a love song, really. But I um, wrote that with Mark Irwin and uh, turned out to be the first hit. And the uh, second single, first one died. So that was my big, big hit. <laughs> it came after that to save me. And Denise was pregnant. And, daughter, it was kind of scary, you know, you never know, you get one or two singles and then the label drops you, you know, so I didn't know what was going to happen, but here in the real world, kind of uh, got it all going. So real. Here's Jackson talking about his next big hit, Neon Rainbow, 
released in 1990 as a song that was simply about where he came from. The Neon Rainbow was just, that was just, uh, Jim McBride and I wrote that and we were just talking about where I'd come from and, and uh, you know, coming to Nashville and trying to get something going in the music business, chasing that dream like so many people do, playing the bars and honky-tonks and doing whatever and the opening line is about Daddy Wanted Radio because we were talking about the first remembrance we had of music and my daddy worked for Pepsi Cola Plant in Noonan there when I was about five and they had an employee contest for something, you know, I mean, you know, he won this little, this uh, little wooden tabletop radio and that's the first radio I remember being at home and and later it was out in his garage for years when we were working on cars, but uh, after that hit, I had that thing fixed up a little bit and the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame got it over in their uh, exhibit. Jackson continues to share the inspiration of that song, Neon Rainbow, as he reflects on his early years growing up and why he wrote this song for his mother. It's funny because they, my dad especially, he probably never said half a dozen words to me growing up to Mount. You know, he just was quiet, but he just always, I guess, uh, made an impact by his, his way of living and, uh, and his good nature. And uh, so I think all that affects you, especially as you get get older and you start thinking for things differently and looking at things differently. But uh, so they've always been in the music home, of course, was... That was the first song that I can remember writing when I came to Nashville. Uh, I guess Denise and I moved here and she was working a lot with airlines. She was gone and homesick and uh, I wrote that. I was gonna give it to my mom for Mother's Day present, just something. And it's really just a story song about them. Uh, when they got married, they were just like 16 or 17 years old or something. And, uh, my granddad was a carpenter and he built this tool shed and, and it was in his backyard and they, they rolled it on logs down next door and mom and daddy set up their house in that and uh, started building around it and and that's where mom is now. She's 80 years old in that house in the center of the house where the den is, that's the old tool shed underneath that sheetrock. So it's, anyway, that's what that song is, it's just talking about them building a home from that and raising us and if you have not seen Alan Jackson perform do it it's a bucket list I'm promising you it's song after song after song hit after hit the guy can sing the guy can write he looks great he travels with the best pickers in Nashville and it's nobody not one person ever is guilty of overplaying on that stage it is perfection it's like seeing a Tom Petty show you just keep going and you keep going you go my goodness why isn't this guy as famous as the Rolling Stones? He should be. Well, he wrote hit after hit. Mostly, though, country people know him. That is country music. But then came a song, Where Were You? A song that was the lead single from his 10th album, Drive. The song's lyrics center on reactions to the September 11th attacks written in the form of questions. The song re- received huge critical acclaim. Folks appreciated it and critics alike for its simple largely apolitical stance. Jackson desired to write a song capturing the emotions surrounding the attacks and found it so difficult to do it. Here he talks about writing that song, how it made people feel, and what he learned about people after the attacks. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? I felt like everybody did when all that 
was going on and what's following and people rethinking their life and what was important to them and uh, I think uh, you know that song kind of shared a lot of those emotions and, and feelings with, with the people that, a lot of people that told me that anyway and what surprised me now that song I thought well I was nervous about putting it out anyway in the beginning but uh, I thought we'd perform it for a little while and then it would just go away you know because I didn't feel like people would want to keep thinking about that but now I mean even today I see people waiting on that song in the crowd you know and it's still some places I'll get they'll be on their feet for several minutes after you finish the song it's a, I think it's just a theme that's um, uh, a subject that, uh, about what's important and uh, that people really uh, find in that song and uh, so it's gone beyond the, the tragedy a little bit and uh, which is surprising to me but it's very nice to have uh, have some music that uh, touches people I've always been careful about uh, music to me is, uh, I've always looked at more as entertainment and fun and try not to get too preachy with it you know but uh, occasionally something comes along that's that's real I guess it that works that way it touches people if anything good came out of 9-11 to me was it um, I think people were so cynical about the world and you know the news just portrays all you hear is all the bad stuff every day you know and uh, what was refreshing to me was after that you saw how many good people there are out there because for every one bad one there's a thousand good ones and you realize that the world there's a lot of great people out there where were you when the world stopped turning on that september day Here, Alan Jackson talks about the difficulty of picking a set list for his concerts because he has so many hits to choose from. He also goes into what country music means to him and who his biggest influences are. I've been working all weekend, I'm tired, I don't want to sleep, and I want to have fun, time for a good time. Hey. I realize that every night when I'm making up a set list, you know, for a show, that just how many songs I have like a piece of paper I keep over here in the drawer with like all the hits on there and then some other songs that I've done over the years that aren't may not be my song or just all the stuff I do live and and uh, it's gotten so long you know that you do you couldn't do them all in two shows hardly well I mean I've always had you know that that mixture of songs from love songs to heartache to you know family type songs and uh, and the fun party songs and drinking songs because that I mean I played in the bars for years and you had to play that stuff and I liked it anyway I mean I grew up Hank Jr. stuff you know I mean that was ultimate party country stuff and that's what I loved and uh, so it's just kind of to me I've always my my albums and what I write and sing about has always been kind of from this side of country music to the other because that's what the country music to me is it's all those things you know certain songs cheating songs drinking songs almost religious type song you know just everything fits right in there and uh, that's the way country music's always been I mean Hank Williams Sr. he'd write write a party song and he'd write a crying song and then he'd have a gospel song out you know so I just think it's it's all the themes that, that represent country music and uh, yes I've, I've had my share of 
Rollum. And so we close out this day in history. Alan Jackson born October 17th with a classic Jackson tune about a classic small town southern man's life. This is Our American Stories. Born the middle son of a farmer and a small town southern man. Like his daddy's daddy before him brought up working on the land. Fell in love with a small town woman and they married up and settled down. Natural way of life if you're lucky for a small town southern man. There came four pretty daughters for this small town southern man. Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. The Nobel Prize in Literature for 2016 is awarded to Bob Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And there you have it, Bob Dylan, awarded with the Nobel Prize in Literature. And you heard Shelter from the Storm bumping in. And no one has heard from Dylan. And this is classic Dylan. He has not responded to the Nobel team about this remarkable prize, which is $927,740. But it doesn't surprise us here that Bob Dylan's not responding. Let's start off things talking about Bob Dylan, which we will for the hour. Let's hear from another great songwriter who inducted Bob Dylan into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988. Bruce Springsteen. The first time that uh, I heard Bob Dylan, I was in the car with my mother. And uh, we were listening to, I think, maybe WMCA. And on came that snare shot that sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind from like a rolling stone. And my mother, who was, she was no stiff with rock and roll. She, She liked the music. She listened. She sat there for a minute and she looked at me and she said, that guy can't sing. And, but I knew she was wrong, you know. I sat there, I didn't say nothing, but I knew that I was listening to the toughest voice that, that I'd ever heard. It was lean, and it sounded somehow simultaneously young and adult. And indeed, all of that is what drew so many millions to Dylan. And let's talk about his childhood, because we always like to start things here on Our American Stories at the beginning. And as often as possible, we love to hear from the artists themselves. We did that with Merle Haggard, with Willie Nelson, with Dolly Parton, and of course with Muddy Waters. Dylan here talks about why he changed his name. Of course, he was born Robert Allen Zimmerman. And how he wasn't exactly happy as a kid staying at home with parents who never traveled. Some people get born, you know, with the wrong names, wrong parents. I mean, that happens. You, you call yourself what you want to call yourself. This is, this is the land of the free. 
I really didn't consider myself happy or unhappy. I always knew that there was something out there that um, uh, I needed to get to, and it, it wasn't where I was at that particular moment. My parents never went anywhere. My father probably thought the capital of the world was where wherever he was at the time. It couldn't possibly be where any, you know, any place else where he and his wife were in their own home. That to them was the capital of the world. Indeed. Well, it wasn't for Bob, and like so many young men and women, they venture out. And Dylan has been on the road ever since. I don't think anyone has toured for as long and as many dates. And in 1960, Bob dropped out of college. He moved to New York, where his idol, the legendary folk singer Woody Guthrie, was hospitalized with a rare hereditary disease of the nervous system. He visited with Guthrie regularly in that hospital room, became a regular in the folk clubs and coffee houses of Greenwich Village, and began writing songs at an astonishing pace, including Song to Woody, a tribute to his ailing hero. Let's take a listen to this early writing. I'm out here a thousand miles from my home Walking a road other men have gone down I'm seeing your world of people and things Here paupers and peasants and princes and kings In the fall of 1961, after some great reviews from the New York Times, he signed a recording contract with Columbia Records. And, well, the rest is history. Columbia spent, by the way, a whopping $402 on his first record. Only 5,000 copies would sell in its first year. 17 songs were recorded. Five of the album's chosen tracks were actually cut in single takes, while the master take of Song to Woody was recorded after one false start. During the sessions, Dylan refused requests to do second takes. Here's a familiar song from that first album, though, a cover of House of the Rising Sun, which you may have never heard before. Let's take a listen. I do that wood play now. I never play it like this now. I never play it Sounding a little like something off of the soundtrack of Brother or Art, though, isn't it? What you learned about Dylan this hour is that he loved the American songbook. All of it. From blues to Tin Pan Alley to folk to rock and gospel. Talking about how he got into the music scene at such a young age and the feeling he had inside himself that told him he was destined for greatness. Here's Bob Dylan again. Well, I listen to the radio a lot. I hung out in the record stores and I slam banged around on a guitar and played the piano and and uh, learned songs from uh, a world which didn't exist around me. It's a feeling you have that you know something about yourself nobody else does. 
the picture you have in your mind of what you're about will come true. That's kind of a thing you kind of have to keep to your own self because it's a fragile feeling and you put it out there and somebody will kill it. So it's best to keep that all inside. Great advice for artists or dreamers of any kind. The negativity you'll hit from trying to do something original is no duck walk. When we come back, the freewheel and Bob Dylan and the songs that exploded his career. The life of Bob Dylan for the hour, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Word man with a word mind. No one in front of me and nothing behind. There's a woman on my lap and she's drinking champagne. That white skin got assassin's eyes. I'm looking up into the sapphire tinted skies. I'm wild dressed, waiting on the last. Must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating the life of Bob Dylan for the hour. He recently won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and we want to rip through his life and his music. And the Freewheel and Bob Dylan record, wow, what an explosion. One of the great songs on that record is a complex and powerful song, built on the question-and-answer refrain pattern on the traditional British ballad Lord Randall, published by Francis Child. Let's listen to a hard rains are gonna fall. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I'm walking, I crawled on six crooked highways I stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard It's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard rains are gonna fall. In a radio interview with Studs Terkel in 1963, a young Bob Dylan had a lot of explaining to do. You see, that song was the beginning of all of the people projecting themselves onto the lyrics of Bob Dylan reading into his songs things that they thought were there, that he, well, he's just a writer and sort of a poet. Listen to the way he handles Studs Terkel. That's just one of them kind of songs. It's just one of those I wrote like that. That was, uh, I wrote that because 
you know, every line in that really is another song, you know. It could be used as a whole song, every single line. And I wrote that when uh, I didn't figure, I didn't know how many other songs I could write, you, know, you see. Uh, that was during, uh, I think, October of last year. And uh, I remember sitting up all night and uh, with a bunch of people someplace. And uh, I wanted to get the most down that I, that I knew about into one song as I possibly could. So I wrote that. By the way, a lot of people thought that he was writing about the nuclear showdown between America and Cuba, and that this might have been a reference, this hard rain, to the nuclear fallout that could have happened. Again, early on, the world was projecting itself on Dylan, and as you'll learn through this hour, he was just pushing them away and changing and changing again. Here, Dylan goes on to describe how the lyrics of Hard Rain had nothing to do with the atomic rain after the interviewer, Studs Terkel, insisted on pushing that narrative. Take this one you sang. This one that I think is a, I think will be a classic. This hard rain's gonna fall. Even though it may have come out of your feelings about atomic rain. At the same no, time... No, no, it, it was it atomic didn't. rain. No, well, go ahead. Somebody else thought that too. Uh -huh. Well, go ahead. Yeah, it's not atomic well, rain. Go ahead. It's just a hard rain. It's hard not atomic rain. rain, no. It's not the fallout rain. No. It isn't that at all. Well, somebody else, I think, said uh -huh. that someplace. Uh, well, go ahead. When you say a hard rain, what do you mean? Although you're I just mean that, uh, some sort of end that's just got to happen. The, the hard rain is going to fall. As in the last verse, when I, when I say uh, where, the hung, where the pellets of poison are flooding the waters, that means all the lies, you know? All the lies that, that people get told in their radios and their newspapers. And, which all you have to do is just think for a minute, you know? And, Trying to take people's brains away, you know, which maybe it's been done already. I don't know. Maybe the I hate to think it's been done, but all the lies, and which is I consider poison, you know. And there you have it, Studs Terkel, then a very great writer for the Chicago Tribune, trying to impose his view of what the Bob Dylan song was about. And Dylan's going, "No, it's not about that. Why are you doing that? Politicizing a song that's about." Really existential stuff, because Dylan wasn't rarely writing about the here and now. He was writing about eternity, still is. Love, death, jealousy, rage, revenge, the stuff Shakespeare writes about. The Freewheel and Bob Dylan reached number 22 in the United States, became a number one hit in the United Kingdom. It was an immediate success. And my goodness, it started to bring Bob Dylan a real income. And then came the times they are changing, Dylan's third album released in January of 1964. Here's the title track. Influenced by Irish and Scottish ballads, it was released as a single in Britain first in 1964 and reached number nine in the British top ten. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone And if your breath to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing By 1964, Dylan was playing 200 concerts annually. By the way, he's kept up this pace practically. It's amazing that a man his age is still out there, 100 to 150 nights a year, still playing scintillating sets. 
But he had become tired of his role as the folk singer of the protest movement. He never bought it. And he never asked for it, by the way. He was also becoming weary of the media. In this clip from a press conference in San Francisco, Dylan has asked one crazy, stupid question. Do you prefer songs with a subtle or obvious message? With a what? A subtle or obvious message. A message? You mean like, what song with a message? Well, like Eve of Destruction and things like that. Do I prefer that to what? I don't know, but your songs are supposed to have a subtle message. A subtle message? Well, they're supposed to. <laughs> Where'd you hear that? In a movie magazine. Oh, In the same press conference, Dylan was asked some more questions about his popularity that he just didn't want to answer. You feel that part of the popularity is because of an identification uh, of your audience with you or with what you're saying or what you've been writing about? I have no idea. Mr. Dillon, you seem very reluctant to talk about the fact that you're a popular entertainer and you're a most popular uh, entertainer. Well, what do you want me to say? Well, I don't understand why you... Uh, well, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say about it? Well, you seem to, almost embarrassed to admit that you're to talk about... Well, I'm not embarrassed. I mean, popular. you know... Uh, what, what do you want exactly me to say? You want me to jump up and say hallelujah and crash the cameras and do something <laughs> Tell me. Tell me. I'll, I'll go along with you. If I can't go along with you, I'll find somebody to go along with you. I no, know. but I, I find it. You really have no idea as to why you or no thoughts on why you're popular. That's the, what interests me. I just have ne- haven't really struggled for that. I, I don't... Uh, it happened, you know? <clears throat> It happened like anything else happens. It happens like anything else. Dylan was never really comfortable with the fame aspect, but always comfortable playing the music that he recorded. When we come back, we dig into his music catalog and the many phases he went through, from Nashville to gospel, and back in the end to the American Songbook. Grammy Award wins, Oscar wins in his 60s, and now the Nobel Prize in Literature. The remarkable career, the remarkable life, of Bob Dylan, right here on Our American Stories. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. Everybody that was hanging out Now you don't talk so loud Now you don't seem so proud About having to be scrounging Your next You know you only used to get juiced in it Nobody's 
ever taught you how to live out on the street And now you're gonna have to get used to it This is our American stories, and that's Guns N' Roses covering Knocking on Heaven's Door. And the true mark of a songwriter is, well, being picked up by singers and songwriters alike and having your songs covered by others. Nobody had his music covered more often and by more people than Bob Dylan. And Dylan was a tremendous influence on just about everyone. The Beatles picked up Free Will and Bob Dylan, and they couldn't stop playing it. Over and over again, they said they played it. And, of course, well, Dylan was influenced by the rock and roll sounds of the Beatles. And, of course, Chuck Berry. So he had rock and roll in the back of his head anyway. And, of course, the Beatles were influenced by Chuck Berry. And in 1965, Dylan shocked the world with his half-electric album, Bringing It All Back Home, the legendary story of him plugging in at the Newport Folk Festival. It was his way of saying goodbye to the folkies. He was on to something new. And by the way, when the Beatles and Dylan finally do meet in New York City, and again, all this is brewing, and the Beatles are now more mature, and they want to write lyrics like they've never written before because of Dylan. And again, Dylan is playing more of that rock and roll. Let's take a listen to the boys from Liverpool. Yeah, we started to meet meet these 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 people who'd really just been in newspapers and on film. You know, we actually were rubbing shoulders with them. He was one of them. He was our idol. Bob was uh, Bob was our hero. Not an idol, but we just heard his record. As I said, we listened to his album and it really gave us a buzz, and we played it constantly, over and over and over again. I mean, I heard of Bob through John. Uh, he'd played the records to me, and it was, just, it was just great. And there you hear it. And I don't think the Beatles probably said that about many people. And then the song that changed everything, from Highway 61 Revisited, Like a Rolling Stone. Let's take a listen. Dress so fine, do the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you people call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all I'm kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. So loud Now you don't Seem so proud About having to be Scrounging Your next
And, of course, he named Highway 61 Revisited after the major American highway which connected his birthplace, Duluth, Minnesota, to the great southern cities that formed the backbone of American music, blues, rock and roll, and country music, and folk all merging in the same area. Blonde on Blonde came next, and John Wesley Harding, but a breakthrough record for him and another departure, Nashville Skyline in 1969, and Dylan had suffered from a tragic, near-fatal motorcycle accident in 66, and the music detoured again. People are expecting one thing from Dylan, and he never gave them what they wanted. They did, he did something more. He gave them what they needed. And great artists always do that. And I think this was a rebuttal to Woodstock, by the way. I've got some great quotes from him. He didn't want anything to do with it. And so at the time that everybody was doing what they were doing up in Woodstock, Dylan was in Nashville and recording, well, let's take a listen to Lay Lady Lay. Lay across my big brass bed Lay, lady, lay Lay across my big brass bed Whatever colors you have In your mind I show them to you And you see them shine Lay, lady, lay Lay across my big brain And on that same record, he found a partner to sing with. And again, another guy who wasn't at Woodstock, but somebody Dylan could come to admire deeply. And this guy had come to admire Dylan deeply, the great Johnny Cash. If you're traveling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there For she once was a true love of mine See for me that her hair's hanging down It curls and falls all down her breast See for me that her hair's hanging down That's the way I remember her bed Well, after Nashville Skyline, again, some ups and downs for Dylan's career. Self-portrait, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in 73, Dylan in 73, self-titled, Planet Waves, 
But then comes another masterpiece, 1975. And again, the songs come out of nowhere. No one had heard any music like this before or after. Here's how the record started off with Tangled Up in Blue. The sun was shining, I was laying in bed Wondering if she'd changed it all, if her hair was still red Her folks, they said our lives together, sure was gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress, papa's bank book wasn't big enough And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes Heading up for the east coast, Lord knows I paid some dues getting through This is Our American Stories, the life of Bob Dylan, celebrated for his recent win of the Nobel Prize for Literature. When we come back, Dylan's Christian period, a period that offended so many New York writers and big city fans, but music that brought him to an entirely new world. Then on to his reemergence as a blues singer, straight up to the recordings of Frank Sinatra. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. I heard it say over my shoulder, we'll meet again someday on the avenue. Tangled up in blue. I had a job in the great north woods, working as a cook for a spell. But I never did like it all They may call you doctor or They may call you chief But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you are You're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody This is Our American Stories And today... We're celebrating the life of Bob Dylan for the hour. And we're doing it because he recently won the Nobel Prize in Literature. 37 studio albums, 100 million in sales plus, covered than perhaps anyone else in rock's history. And now, what you're listening to is Bob Dylan's Christian record, and he had three of them. And this, perhaps the best known from gospel and gospel singers, Bob Dylan's Gotta Serve Somebody. And this is his now fourth transformation in his career. This time, he's a born-again Christian. And the evangelical slow train coming was a commercial hit and won Dylan his first Grammy. And you got to serve somebody who's been covered by so many gospel singers, it'll kill you. We'll play one cover later. Shot of Love is the 21st studio album by Bob Dylan, released on August 10th. And it can continued to... Well, Dylan continued to work his born-again Christian gospel songs. This was the third of a trilogy. And let's play two of the great songs on that record. Here's the groom still waiting at the altar. Waiting in the ghetto With my face in the cement Heard the last moan of a boxer 
On this record as well was the masterpiece, Every Grain of Sand. And here is Emmy Lou Harris covering this remarkable Bob Dylan song. The next breakout record, Empire Burlesque, his 23rd studio album, 1985, and self-produced. And some of the session players that played on that, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers members, Mike Campbell, Ben Montench, Howie Epstein. In fact, Petty loved doing this so much, he ended up being Dylan's backup band. Google hard to handle, watch that tour, it does not get better. And that's the testimony to Bob Dylan that a guy like Tom Petty would just want to follow him around on the road for a year. Just think about that. Here's the top song on that record, Tight Connection to My Heart. records pass and then he bumps into a guy named Daniel Lenoir and Oh Mercy is the record and the song well you can hear a whole new musical style start to form and the song is Everything is Broken (laughs) 
Broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use driving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. And then he teams up with Lenoir again for his masterpiece, my favorite Dylan record, and many. And it's the 30th studio album. Imagine that. The 30th Time Out of Mind. And it was his first double studio album since Self-Portrait in 1970, and it won him a Grammy. Time Out of Mind got Album of the Year, Best Contemporary Folk Album, and my goodness, Best Male Rock Vocal Performance for Cold Irons Bound. At the awards ceremony for the Grammys, Dylan performed Lovesick. Let's take a listen. I'm walking the streets that I did Walking with you in my head So he gets a Grammy for that. And if you've ever seen the movie that he won his Grammy for, well, my goodness, Wonder Boys, what a great performance by Michael Douglas, and what a great song by Bob Dylan. Here's Things Have Changed. Things have changed. He won an Oscar for that. There wasn't anything Dylan didn't win, including he was the first rock star to ever receive the Kennedy Center honors, and that was 1997. And, of course, you've got to start with Bob Dylan. We could not play the Shirley Caesar version of you got to serve somebody, but check it out. It's so good when we were talking about great covers. And we have to end with the greatest cover of all time. Everybody thinks so. I don't think you can disagree. It's Jimi Hendrix. It's all along the watchtower. This is Our American Stories, and we've celebrated the life of Bob Dylan and his recent Nobel Prize win in literature. The life, the music, the genius of the man, Bob Dylan. 
This is Our American Story. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Business man there, drink my wine. 